would you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9. We want to uh, welcome those who are here, you, as well as welcome those who are listening by radio, locally in our state, as well as nationally on a satellite network, CSN. It's a large family who know about you and about uh, your love for the Lord, and they tune into this broadcast on Saturday evenings. Would you welcome them? For years now, Santa Claus has been regarded as the undisputed king of Christmas. And we know he is not. He may be the king of shoppers and the king of commercialism and the king of cost, but he is not the king of Christmas. Um, You should know, in all fairness to St. Nick, he started out very differently. There was a literal St. Nicholas. Nicholas, he was called, of Myra. In the 4th century, Myra, a a place in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And Nicholas was born, a very wealthy young man, grew up in an an aristocratic family, but he encountered Jesus Christ, and because he did, he decided to give a lot of his wealth away. He even joined the ministry in the 4th century and was bishop over the church in Myra. In fact, so important was his role that in The year 325, he attended the Council of Nicaea and vigorously debated for the Trinity against the Arian heresy. That's Nicholas. Uh, He continued in his compassion. In fact, he had compassion on a poor man who had three daughters who had become prostitutes, and he wanted them to be um, delivered from such a life. And so he provided on three separate occasions... Uh, bags of gold that he threw in through the window to provide enough dowry to give these gals an honorable marriage. That's Nicholas. He became Saint Nick. He took on lots of trappings and ideas. In fact, in the 1800s, an author by the name of uh, Thomas Nast and an author uh, by the name of Clement Moore redesigned Santa to become what he is today. But I found a piece I want to read to you in keeping with this called Why Jesus is Better Than Santa Claus. It says, Santa lives at the North Pole. Jesus is everywhere. Santa comes but once a year. Jesus is an ever-present help. Santa fills your stockings with goodies. Jesus supplies all your needs. Santa comes down your chimney uninvited. Jesus stands at your door and knocks and then enters your heart when he is invited. You have to wait in line to see Santa. Jesus is as close as the mention of his name. Santa lets you sit on his lap. Jesus lets you rest in his arms. Santa doesn't know your name. All he can say is, Hi, little boy. Hi, little girl. What's your name? Jesus knew your name before you did. He not only knows our name, He knows our address, He knows our history, He knows our future. He even knows how many hairs are on your head or not. I edited that. 
Santa has a belly like a bowl full of jelly. Jesus has a heart full of love. All Santa can offer is ho, ho, ho. Jesus offers help and hope, hope, hope. Santa says, you better not cry. Jesus says, cast all your cares upon me and I care for you. Santa's little helpers, they make toys. Jesus makes new life, mends wounded hearts, repairs broken homes and builds mansions. Santa makes you chuckle. Jesus gives you joy. Santa puts gifts under your tree. Jesus became our gift and died on the tree. That's why Jesus is better than Santa. Jesus Christ is the king of Christmas. And Isaiah takes us back way before the nativity of Christ, way before Bethlehem, 600 years prior. And he gives us a glimpse at where Christmas really began, a prediction. 600 years before Christ was born in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Now, Isaiah is uh, the first book in what is called the Major Prophets. You know, the prophets are divided into major and minor. And that doesn't mean some are better than others. Um, Some are more true than others. Or, you know, there's slang today, like, he was a major prophet, dude. It's, It's not in that sense. It's in the sense that he just said a lot. He wrote 66 chapters. Major prophets write a lot. Minor prophets write less. The major prophet, Isaiah, appearing down through time, could see the birth, the cross, and the glory of Christ. He saw it all. In chapter 7, he already predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin and that he would be called God with us. In chapter 9, he mentions that the Messiah will be a light to bring the Gentile nations out of darkness. And now he gives us more insight. We'll look at two verses tonight. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Back in 1946, there was a movie made that is played just about every Christmas Eve. It's a black and white film. You've probably heard it or seen it called It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, it stars Jimmy Stewart, who in the movie was George Bailey. And uh, George Bailey was... He, he, he was suicidal. <laughs> he, he, he fell down in his life, lost uh, what he thought was everything, and was ready to kill himself until, as the movie shows, this apprentice angel puts it all in perspective, shows George what his town, his world, would be like without him. And it's not a good place because George has so impacted his community, that life without George Bailey was not a a good world. And it changes his whole perspective. At the end of the movie, he runs through his town, Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls! He's excited because he understands his life has a purpose. Imagine, and it's hard to, this world without Christ. 
No promise, no hope, no king, no heaven. Hopeless completely. Now tonight we're going to look at these two verses and you have an outline. We want to look at the king, the kingship, and the kingdom. The verses are sort of divided up, these two. First of all, Isaiah notices this remarkable person, the king, the remarkable birth, the remarkable nativity of the king. Then there's a list of names given also in verse 6, the royal names of his kingship. We want to look at them briefly, but completely if we can. And then finally, verse 7 goes to his kingdom, the righteous nature of his kingdom. First of all, verse 6, this is his birth. It's pretty evident. It says, For unto us a child is born. Now that's the manger. That's Bethlehem. That's what we think about typically at Christmas. A child is born. The Christ child. The phrase emphasizes his humanity. Jesus Christ entered the world like any other human being as a, as a baby, as a child. Now, it's important to emphasize this for, for, for a couple of reasons, but first off, we as evangelical Christians are real big at emphasizing the deity of Christ. I mean, we'll fight any cultist over that issue. But what you may not know is the first heresy in the church was not a denial of the divinity of Christ. It was a denial of the humanity of Christ. The first heresy was called Gnosticism, that denied Jesus Christ was born in human flesh. And that's why so many New Testament books were written to counteract it. That's why 1 John says, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. We must never forget that God, our God, became a human being. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, it's funny that we evangelicals get a little squirmy about that sometimes. Let me put it to you in plain language in the words of John Weborg. He said, There is God in the flesh, thriving in a placenta, protected by a water bag, bouncing on a donkey ride to Bethlehem where his folks had to meet the local IRS. That's perspective. No different than any other baby at the time, God, deep in the flesh, became God deep in the straw. Mary, the mother of the Creator, sustained the one who sustained all. That's mind-boggling. Every time we touch on it, we go... Yeah, okay. Hmm. That's why Paul said, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. But your Savior, your Jesus, this, this person, this God in human flesh became sleepy. He got in a boat and fell asleep on Galilee. He got fatigued, we remember. He sat down at the well in Samaria because he was weary from his journey. He got hungry as he fasted out in the wilderness. He cried at the funeral of Lazarus. And he died, and while he died, he felt all of the feelings any dying human would feel when he died with that pain at the cross. So he is the Son of Man. Unto us a child is born. 
But also notice in that same verse, He is the Son of God. Not only unto us a child is born, but unto us a son is given. Did you notice the wording, how different it is? It's not born now, it's given. A child is born, but it's a son given. Now this suggests, not only by the wording here, but by the context of what Isaiah has already divulged about this Messiah in chapter 7, born of a virgin, God with us, it suggests pre-existent deity. Think about it. Jesus Christ was the only person who existed before He lived. There is God, the second person of the Trinity, who then was given to be Savior. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Unto us a Son is given. So we have the dual nature of Christ. He's man, born as a child, but He's given as the Son of God. Paul frames it so beautifully, succinctly in, in Philippians. Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but He emptied Himself and He became a man. Understand that Jesus never became God. I've heard that. Well, there was a time in His life where He realized, hey, I think I'm the Messiah. And, and this Christ nature came upon Him and He became something other. He never became God. He was God before He was born. He was God after He became man. His deity was pre-earthly, pre-Bethlehem, pre-Mary. He was fully deity as we sing and hark the herald angels sing that phrase that says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Remember a few years ago when Joan Osborne came out with that song? Everybody thought it was cool and novel. What if God was one of us? Remember that lame song? Dun, 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 dun. Like it's some novel thing. Listen, He was one of us. God, eternal God, who existed as God, became then a man and continued to be God while being fully man. Talk about having a cross-cultural experience. I've said this on many occasions. It's hard for us to imagine, except if you've ever gone to a third world country. And the first time you do, you are suddenly aware, there's no McDonald's here. There's no air conditioning in every single room. They eat weird. Things smell differently. It's so other than what I'm used to. Imagine leaving heaven and all of the joys of heaven and the singing of the angels and the glory and the worship that was given to you to come here, to come poor, to come in a manger. But that's Jesus. This is the remarkable nativity of the King. Speaking of the King, notice the next phrase. Not only is He... Uh, the Son of Man and the Son of God, but He is the Sovereign King. For it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon His shoulder. So here's a baby born who says He is God in the flesh, and the government will be upon His shoulder. Now Isaiah, what he is doing is looking forward to the prophetic future, past Bethlehem, past the cross, into the kingdom age, when the government will rest upon His shoulder. Government, the Hebrew word misra, means the rule of a monarch. And in those days, well, probably in, in any era, to rule, government was considered a burden. 
to be born on the shoulders of a monarch, to be born on his back. And it was symbolized by putting a robe on his shoulders. That's the idea of the government will be upon his shoulders. He will bear the burden of world rule. And he will bear it well. Think of it. One day, the God-man who created the world, who came into the world to be rejected by the world, will one day rule over the world. And I submit to you, this is why he is qualified to do it. Because he made it as God, because he lived in it as man, and one day he will come back and rule over it. There was a European monarch I read about. I read a couple of these stories, but it says, and there's different names. I don't know who it is, but I'll just say in generic terms, a European monarch twice a year would take off his robes of royalty and, and, and put on peasant garments and walk among the peasants of the land and engage in conversations like, what do you think about the king? Do you like the tax structure? How, how do you think he's doing? How's the government? And the courtiers of the king got really whacked out over this. They said, you, you can't do this, king. You're in jeopardy. You're in harm's way. And the king would always reply, I cannot rule my people unless I know how they live. Jesus Christ, God incognito, coming to this earth to a manger, wrapped in human skin. Sovereign king, one day. No wonder the angels sang. No wonder the wise men took that trek. But you know, if, if we were to hire a modern public relations firm and say, God is coming to the world. The King of Kings is coming. How do you think they'd handle it? Where would Jesus be born? In a stable in Bethlehem? No, Rome General. The best hospital Rome could provide. The best physicians. Uh, a golden bassinet, satin sheets, right? An entourage of the who's who of the Roman Empire. The best band money could buy. You'd have to think in terms of the wedding of Princess Di, the inauguration of a president. That's what the firm would do, no doubt, but not God. No, he took the poorest of the poor in the backwaters of the empire in a land that was ill-regarded. Why? One word, identification. Born in those circumstances, under those conditions, the king of kings could now relate to every person. A poor person could never say, well, I could never attain to the status of being able to have an audience with this king. He came as poor. He came as one having nothing, born in a feeding trough. And, and the rich could come too, but they'd have to humble themselves and become as a child. So anybody could come. He is the perfect king because as a man, he's a perfect representative of us. As God, he's the perfect sacrifice for us being sinless. So on the cross, with his hands stretched out, you might say Jesus could take the hand of the Father and the hand of humanity and bring us together in reconciliation. God became man. This is the one who will rule as sovereign king. So this is then the remarkable nativity of the king. He is described. Look at the rest of the verse. Brings us to another section of this. It's the royal names of his kingship. 
His name will be called, get this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See what Isaiah does? He goes to the nativity, the birth of a child, who is the Son of God, who is the future king, And he's now dwelling in that kingdom age, really. That's really what Isaiah is doing. He's showing that Jesus got out of the manger and will one day rule the world. And these are names of his kingship. He's speaking of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ upon the earth, spoken about several times in Revelation chapter 20. Now, these names, that doesn't mean that He's going to be a child literally called by these personal names. These aren't his middle names. Somebody will say, well, when was he ever called that? You know, he didn't introduce himself as, Hi, I'm Jesus, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Christ. These are titles of his rule. By the way, Christ wasn't his last name. Some of you still think that. He was Yeshua ben Yosef. Jesus, the son of Joseph, from Nazareth. Christ is his messianic title. And here are kingly titles. One of several, by the way. Only a few are mentioned here. Billy Sunday preached a message on this text. This is what he said. He said, There are 256 names given in the Bible for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose this is because he is infinitely beyond all that any one name can express. But Isaiah picks out a few now, and he applies them to this child who will rule as king. And first of all, look on the list, Wonderful Counselor. Now, I've combined those two names. Um, My Bible has a comma in between Wonderful and Counselor. But most modern versions take the comma out and include as one phrase, Wonderful Counselor. It seems to fit best. It could be translated exceptional counselor or distinguished counselor. In other words, this one is unique and different from all other counselors. I've been to a few counselors. They're not wonderful. He'll be wonderful. And while Jesus walked upon the earth, he was regarded as a wonderful counselor. People came to him from everywhere to be counseled by him. Nicodemus came in Jerusalem at night to listen to him. The crowds of people flocked on the hillsides of Galilee to listen to him. Those beyond the Jordan came to hear him. And when he spoke, when he gave forth his counsel, it was wonderful. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they said that they marveled because he spoke as one who had authority, not like the scribes. When he went back to Nazareth, the scripture says, all were amazed by the gracious words that fell from his lips. In John chapter 7, when the temple guards came to arrest him but came back with nothing, they answered, no man ever spoke like this man. He's a wonderful counselor. And even to this day, people will come to Jesus to get wonderful counsel. Sometimes you'll find people, they're called Christians, who will say, I'm going to get my counsel not from the world but from Jesus himself. Never to be disappointed because he's the only one that seems to make sense in this crazy world. My father-in-law listened to the wonderful counselor of Jesus Christ before he was saved, having not a religious background, didn't really even believe in Jesus Christ, decided one night to read the New Testament 
the red letters, just the red words to see if Jesus was a positive person. And after he read the Gospels, he closed the book and he said, this Jesus is salvation. He is God. I have to give my life to him. He turned to wonderful counsel from the wonderful counselor and he was saved. Unfortunately, so many, most people in fact, turn elsewhere for counsel. That's not too wonderful. The therapists and analysts and psychics, psychos. <laughs> and it seems that the therapy never ends because as soon as they uncover one horrible thing about the person, the counselor will say, oh, there's several others. It's lifelong. This is the wonderful counsel. Can you imagine if Jesus Christ set up an office here in town? It was open. You could come to it any time. And, and wouldn't it be wonderful to have a counselor who knew everything about you? That was Jesus. You know, if I knew everything about you, you wouldn't want to come. <laughs> but here is Jesus. You come into his office and you say, Jesus, I've come because I have <clears throat> marriage problems. He'd say, I know. Well, last night I said something. Oh, I know what you said to your wife. I was there when you said it. I saw the look on your face and the motive in your heart. But what wonderful counsel he would give. Because knowing the full depth of our need, he could provide exactly the right answer. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. It's the wonderful counsel you want. And let me just uh, kind of close this section before we go to the next phrase. Come to Christ for your counsel. Look to Him for how to run your life. There's an old Danish proverb that says, He who listens to every man's advice to build his house will have a crooked house. And you'll have a crooked life if you listen to everybody's counsel. Listen to Christ's counsel. It's wonderful. Then he is called the mighty God. This is what makes the wonderful counselor so wonderful is that he has the power of being the mighty God. The wonderful counselor is the mighty God. And as the mighty God, he can provide change. You can go to any other counselor in town and they won't be able to empower you to do anything about your problems. They'll tell you, my advice is, but this counselor can give you the power to change from the inside out. Not reformation, but transformation. Like it says in the book of Romans. In the days um, in Russia, the days of communism, when communism spread and took over that land as a pervasive ideology, you know, they would, they would hire men to go out and to speak the communist uh, promises to the crowds in, in different towns, even in churches. And, and they were often fond of saying that communism will put a new coat on every man. That was their line. Communism will put a new coat on every man. They tried that one night in a church and a Christian in the front row boldly stood up and said, maybe so, but only Christ can put a new man in every coat. He'll change the life. He'll give you the power along with the counsel. Third, he is called Everlasting Father. Now this sort of puzzles us, doesn't it? Because... From what we've learned about the Trinity, the Son is always distinguished from the Father. So how can the Son be the Father? Is he saying that Jesus is his Father? No, he's not saying that. 
Isaiah is speaking to the originator of eternity. That's what it means. The father of eternity. The originator. The source of the everlasting. Of all eternity. Would be a better translation of the phrase. Once again, Isaiah simply says what it says about Christ in so many other portions of the Bible. Like John 1. All things were made by Christ. And without Him nothing was made that has been made. Listen to this. I think it will help. This is a quote out of Hebrews chapter 1. This is the Father, God the Father, addressing God the Son. And this is what it says. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. This is the Father speaking to the Son. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up. But you are the same Your years will not fail. Simply, the Father is acknowledging that the Son created time out of eternity. The Father of eternity. The originator of eternity. The source. Then, here's a familiar phrase. We sort of looked at it last week. He's the Prince of Peace. Now this takes us to Bethlehem again. There's those shepherds out in the fields, minding their own business only to be interrupted by angels who said in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace. Goodwill toward men. We sing it every year. But, you know, a couple thousand years later, looking back through history, we wonder, now, were those angels mocking us? As we discovered last week, only 8% of world history has been a time of peace. So here he's called, predicted as the Prince of Peace. And when Jesus was born, the angel said, Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. What does this mean? Well, it means, number one, that this one, this child, this son, this coming king, is the one who will ultimately bring peace. He'll ultimately bring peace. When Jesus came the first time into Jerusalem, right before his crucifixion, what did he ride? He rode a a donkey, which was an animal of peace. Kings rode donkeys in times of peace, offering peace to a nation. Now in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back the second time, he'll come back on what? A horse. Now that's an animal of a warrior, a king doing battle. He came to offer peace. It was unaccepted. He'll come back the second time as a warrior, really to end a war going on, the Battle of Armageddon, and set up an everlasting kingdom of peace. And His peace will continue forever and ever. So, the Prince of Peace, ultimately He will come again. Ultimately He will bring peace. But I think it means something else. It means as the Prince of Peace, God's peace is available to anyone now who will receive the Prince of Peace. Let me give you a better translation of Luke chapter 2, verse 14. We typically sing, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. A literal translation is, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom God is well pleased. Or as the Knox translation puts it, to those who are God's friends. So, Is God pleased with your life? Are you at peace, as we mentioned last week, with God? Then God will grant you His peace, as Jesus promised His disciples. 
One day Jesus will reign worldwide. Until then, He reigns, you might say, secretly in our hearts to those who receive Christ. Paul or Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. But one day it will be. And that's what the next verse speaks of. An everlasting kingdom. Verse 7. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Wow. Dennis the Menace once asked his father in that beloved cartoon, he said, Dad, why can't Christmas ever go into overtime? Answer, it can, right? One day this king will come. One day his kingdom will be established. And of the increase, it says, of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Keep in mind once again that Isaiah is reaching forward not to Jesus' first coming, but to His second coming. When He establishes the kingdom age after Revelation 19, and there's a thousand years of a kingdom age upon the earth, and then He will reign into the everlasting ages after that millennial kingdom upon the earth. And His reign is described as continual. It'll go on forever and ever. It'll expand. It'll get better and better. It's not four years. We don't vote in Jesus and then four years later vote in a new Messiah. It's a continual, forever kingdom. It's also historical upon the throne of David because the Father had promised to King David that His kingdom would reign forever and ever. His his throne would continue. And Jesus is of the lineage of King David. By the way, that's why there are two genealogies in Matthew and Luke. Both of them show that Joseph and Mary can be traced back to King David, showing that Jesus had that dynastic right to rule as the son of David. Oh, by the way, as an aside, you know, some people ask me about this millennium. Is it literal? You bet your life it's literal. Is it really a thousand years? Absolutely a thousand years. And it's a necessity. Because God has yet to fulfill all of the promises He made to the kingdom of Israel. He promised that Israel would have not only a spiritual kingdom, but a literal kingdom. That the Messiah would reside, preside, in and from Jerusalem and establish a worldwide peace. That has to happen. It hasn't happened yet. The millennium will be the fulfillment of that. So it will be a continual, historical, and equitable kingdom. Equitable because it says to order it an establishment with justice and justice. I don't know why everybody's worried about God's judgment. Well, what about those people in that part of the world? And what about that one? You're dealing with God who knows everything, who is the wonderful counselor, who as the mighty God knows every motivation. He's more equipped than any of us. And that's why the Bible says that we will say of His judgments, just and true are Thy judgments, O Lord. It will be perfectly equitable, perfectly righteous to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. Ah, I can't wait. No political parties arguing anymore. 
Can you imagine? Imagine what this kingdom is going to be like. You're going to be a part of it if you know Christ. It'll be a world without war. It'll be a world full of peace. It will be a world where there's a perfect utopia. Try to imagine a world where everything is fair and right. Every action is just when it comes from this king. There is joy. There is peace everywhere. Imagine a world where if somebody dies at age 100, he's considered an infant. Imagine a world where children can play in snake pits and the snakes are friendly. And where the children are friendly to the snakes. (laughs) Imagine a world where the lion and the lamb can lay down peacefully without one hunting the other. Imagine a world where the food on earth is so overabundant, though the population of the earth is immense. Imagine a world ruled by one perfect person with one perfect mind and one perfect will. Imagine a world where all politicians in charge are saints. You're silent because it's hard to imagine that. (laughs) But that's what's coming. That's this kingdom. This child who is also the son given, who is also the king coming, is also the mighty God who will have an everlasting rule. Jesus, our Messiah. Now, his shoulders are big enough to have the governments of the world rest upon no problem, without a burden. Which means his shoulders are broad enough for you to rest your life on now. You who want your own autonomy and your own ability to make choices and decisions. Your shoulders aren't big enough. One day there will come circumstances that you won't be able to handle. I meet these people all the time. You can't do it alone. You can't do it even with the support structure of a family. Sometimes life gets bigger than that and you need broader shoulders. The government of your life must rest upon Him. He can handle it. I read a few years ago of a doctor who uh, told of a young woman, a patient of his, who was dying of a lung disease. Tuberculosis was the disease. And this is what the doctor wrote. He said, Every day her condition continued to grow worse and worse, yet she clung to life. Toward the end of February, she was nauseated, and I was stumped. A senior medical consultant asked me if she could be pregnant. To my astonishment, it was true. The chest x-ray showed the growth of the tuberculosis cavity had stopped. And the reason? Her diaphragm was pushing up against her diseased lung to make room for the child she bore. The doctor concluded the child saved her. child saved her. Unto us a child is born. Unto us... A son is given. Why? So that the child could save us. The birth of the child who would be the Son of God, who would go to the cross, who would come again as the reigning king, could save us. Unto us. Who's us? Everyone. Anyone who will come. There was a bumper sticker a few years ago. I see it every now and then by those people who refuse to take bumper stickers off their car. It was a play on words, the two words, no. 
spelled N-O and K-N-O-W. It said, no Jesus, no peace, N-O. N-O, no Jesus, no peace. Followed by, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace. I like that. No Jesus, no peace. But if you know Jesus, you'll know peace. Is your life, and only you can answer this, firmly rested upon his shoulders tonight? Have you surrendered? I'm not asking you, do you come to church on Christmas and Easter? And acknowledge there's a God out there somewhere. We have an understanding. I don't bother Him. He doesn't bother me. (laughs) I don't want to be one to just wish you Happy Easter because I may not see you again for another year. I want Christmas for you to go into overtime. As Dennis the Menace wanted, that dream, that wish, that hope can come true if you let your life rest upon His shoulders. Not Dennis's, Jesus. His shoulders are broad enough. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are considering during this Christmas season the story, but from a different angle. It's not the shepherds, not the wise men, not the animals in the manger, not the hurry and flurry of Bethlehem. But we're considering it long before Bethlehem, long before the manger, long before the cross. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. This is the Christmas story according to Isaiah. Who looked into the future and saw a baby born of a virgin called God with us, a child born, a son given, a king coming, who would be the mighty God. And because of his power, is such a wonderful counselor and offers peace. We, we look forward to the kingdom, but Lord, we, we need to just ask about our own kingdom, our own life, our own world, where our life is resting. Some of us have made the choice to rest it firmly upon the shoulders of Christ. Others have not. For many more, they are relying upon themselves, their goodness, they're relying upon their sacraments, they're relying upon their church attendance or spiritual activities, and not solely upon the finished work of this wonderful Prince of Peace. You gave your Son, Lord. We're convinced of that because you want Christmas to go into overtime. You want it to go into all the time. Lord, our prayer now is for those who have not made that definite, firm commitment to Christ. They have not released the reins of their lives to you personally. You said in your word that has to happen. You plainly said, as many as would receive him, to them he would give the power to become the children of God. To those who believe in, rely on and cling to his name. Lord, I pray that many here tonight, even those on the radio listening, would do that. You've given us so much. You gave us the best Christmas gift, Jesus. And all you want from us is us. Not our presence under a tree for you. You want our presence. You want us. Take us, Lord. And move among everyone in this auditorium who has not actually surrendered their life yet to you. 
and turn from their past, from their sin, from their life, and turn completely to you. Do that, Lord. Bring them to you tonight. Save them. Save them.